I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. My guests today are co-authors of the techno-thriller novel Profit. Helen MacDonald is an English writer, naturalist, and an affiliated research scholar at the University of Cambridge. Their 2014 book, H's for Hawk, tells the true story of a year spent training a northern goshawk while grieving. The book won, among many other things, the Samuel Johnson Prize for Literature. Sin Blaché is an American-Irish musician and writer. The pair became friends on social media where they bonded over nerdish things. Then they arranged to meet in a remote Airbnb in rural Ireland to finish work on a collaborative novel. Profit was released in late 2023 to widespread acclaim. A reviewer for The Guardian described it as a work of exceptional storytelling skill and stylistic panache suggesting an alternative title might be H's for High Octane Adventure. Welcome, Helen MacDonald and Sin Blaché. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, yeah, Profit is a thriller all about nostalgia, a secret programme to weaponize our cultural touchstones, uh, so including American diners and care bears and things like that. Um, nostalgia is a pretty powerful force. It's everywhere at the moment. Reboots, remasters, even this podcast, you might say. <laughs> what uh, what conclusions have you both drawn from deep, thinking deeply about our collective obsession with the things we loved when we were young? Oh, goodness me. It is it is everywhere. Um, I, and I think, you know, one of the things that's going to be really fun to talk about in this, in this podcast is how some of the th- games we're talking about kind of really did influence how we were thinking about the way that objects have power over us. It's its a really interesting political moment for nostalgia. You know, it's a very old phenomenon. 
But um, the way it's been kind of politically weaponized of late is, is fascinating. And I think both Sid and I, you know, are thinking about, you know, Facebook where people will post a picture of a 1980s chocolate bar and suddenly there'll be the kind of, you know, the culture wars will be happening in the comments. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really alarming how, how these objects become haunted with an enormous amount of, of freighted with meaning that, 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 that we seem to not be able to control. It's really, really interesting. It's really interesting for sure. And I think um, especially when it comes to things like video games, because of how a lot of developers, producers, executives have discovered that anybody who had any connection to the 80s especially will just dump all their money on something that makes them feel like they did when they were a child or when mm. they were at least safe in the 80s and they could like they could play pong or pac-man or whatever else and everything was going to be okay to a certain extent and so we have these tiny ataris and these mini <laughs> mega drives that we're all buying again for reasons that we can't really explain to ourselves which is really interesting hmm. because we're all being cooled by it. I mean, I mean, you know, we had a lot of fun in the book, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but there's a kind of spooky substance in it called profit, and when people are exposed to it, it makes them have a kind of trauma which makes them generate an, a sort of an idea of an object from their past that represents safety to them, and then it becomes a real thing in front of them, and then it's it, things get really bad. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite bits, uh, a bit that Sin, Sin wrote in, in the book, because, you know, it was this collaboration was a bit towards the end where someone gets eaten by a, a Pac-Man arcade cabinet um, one of the funniest and most gory moments of the book, but like, yeah, we so we basically we had a lot of fun, sort of making real and concrete the things that are happening to us psychologically in this book. It was it was you know we, we'd like to think of it as a fun book, but also it's pretty political. Yeah, mm. what's um you know speaking personally for each of you, what are the objects that hold the most powerful nostalgic draw for you each that you're you're only too willing to dump all your money on no i know it's one actually when we were writing the book we i, I did a bit of a thing with Sid and i both put on twitter you know if you could rescue one object from your past you know that represents safety what would it be and we had these incredible responses everything from lampshades to kind of you know grandfather's rocking chairs and you know a few a few guys said you know my ex-girlfriend which was a bit kind of uncool I mean <laughs> I think mine in fact I actually have the objects there are a couple of plastic dinosaurs that I got from the Natural History Museum when I was a kid I, my parents used to just dump me there on Saturday mornings I think they'd be arrested now and I was obsessed with dinosaurs and birds and I, I still have these dinosaurs that uh, yeah if the house is burning down I'd probably save the parrots first but I try and I try and get the plastic dinosaurs too they're very important to me I think currently well I uh, I, I'm originally from San Francisco. My my father's from Dublin, and we moved back and forth a lot of the time. But when we were um, still living in LA, uh, we had a a nasty old VCR player, and I would constantly watch The Brave Little Toaster, which was an animated film um, about a toaster and its journey across the country to find its master and be loved again. And we had a a silver um, toaster like the one in the movie. And when I was a kid, my dad got some metal paint and drew um, the face of the Brave Little Toaster on it from a a paused still. And we had it for, I think, about a year or two, the face of the toaster on it. 
And then we moved to Ireland and the plugs were different. So we have to leave the toaster behind. Oh, dear. This story. I would just think of the fact that this little toaster thing trying to get across the Atlantic. I mean, the original brave. story, the brave little toaster did manage to go to Mars. So it's probably fine. <laughs> I mean, that sounds vaguely traumatic, actually. <laughs> it's good at the trauma. A lot of the most traumatic scenes are there. <laughs> this masterly. Um, Helen, you've written before about how certain objects are numinous, so imbued with an almost divine quality. And you wrote in an essay, your most numinous object is a Sony BHF90 cassette tape. Um, is there a distinction, do you think, between things that are just nostalgic and things that are numinous? Oh, that's a really good question. So my, my, my sort of, you know, this, this came out of a whole lot of thinking I was doing about how when I was writing about some of the experiences I've had in the natural world, you know, being a nature writer initially, and how those experiences, I never found the right language for them until I realized that I had to go to books on, on theology, basically. These were kind of, you know, experiences that other people might think as, as being divine. So, yeah, I think for me, the numinousness of an object or a thing tends to be a really interesting collision between something which is a moment of sort of surprising access to the workings of the world in a kind of natural way, but often meshing with human emotional needs. So this this cassette tape was was one which had a a recording of a of a symphony by Sibelius on it, uh, which had been recorded from Japanese uh, radio during a thunderstorm. So right the way through this 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 recording, you could hear kind of the kind of the white noise of static of these events, of these of these sort of lightning strikes coming through. And it became sublime to me. I mean, I, I, I listened to it over and over again. And I think that that notion of kind of the numinous being a kind of weird mesh of the human and the kind of eternal and natural is something which, yeah, it's it's a really, really phenomenally powerful thing. Mm. Do you have anything like that sin in your life? Absolutely not. No, uh, <laughs> I'm a child of uh, of immigration and uh, I, I guess from one side and the other because my father's Irish, my mother's American. He moved over to America and she moved over here. So either way, kind of out of place. And what, what we actually found out while we were writing Profit is that immigrants, uh, first-generation immigrants, tend not to imbue any importance onto items or things like that. And I do find myself a little bit dismissive of, of items and things from my past hmm. um, because, you know, you could lose them at any point. You can move at any point. And there's nothing holding you to those things. So there's always a kind of a longing or a jealousy to have these these items like like Helen's tape. Uh, but no, I don't have any of those. Hmm. Interesting. You both met on the internet, as I said in the, the introduction. Who was it that first suggested the idea of working on a book together and how vulnerable a proposition was that to make? That was Helen. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, I know. It was really funny. I was kind of, because I, I was meant to be going to Midway Atoll in the Pacific to research a book on albatrosses and nature and the end of the world. And I couldn't get out there because of, yeah, I know it's, it's really cheerful during the pandemic. <laughs> I couldn't get out there because of the pandemic. Everything was locked down and it is the most remote place on earth. It just wasn't possible. And Sid and I have been talking quite a lot. Just we never met. In fact, we didn't meet until we'd nearly finished the book. We were just talking a lot about nostalgia and our political moment. And, and I was like, you know what? This is kind of cool. And we'll talk maybe a little bit later about how, you know, video games are kind of instrumental in this thing kicking off. But I, I basically said, like, you know, let's 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 write a novella. <laughs> yeah, the book is like four hundred pages long. Sin was like, it's not gonna be a novella and it and it really wasn't, you know. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was a really I mean, you know, Sin it it was really fun from the beginning. You know, we we 
we worked on kind of thinking about plot and characters and I had a weird dream about a diner in a field which kind of you know it's really embarrassing to say that a dream was part of a <laughs> a plot but it, there it was and we just started writing and we just it was so much fun it felt illegal yeah for sure especially in the middle of the pandemic and this is really in the middle middle <laughs> nobody could leave everybody was trying to avoid facebook because it was awful and but we were all still online and we were just gorging ourselves on everything that we could watch or take in or talk about or anything because we couldn't leave our houses. <laughs> so we ended up, yeah, we talked a lot about uh, the different media that we were into because that was the overlap, right? Because I'm not a bird person, but I am a huge sci-fi nerd. And so is Helen. So we ended up talking a lot about stuff like that and movies that we go crazy for and things that we were re-watching during the pandemic. And, yeah. um, and so it ended up being a thing where we just agreed that we could probably write something that we wanted to read and that we wanted to exist. And so that's what we did. Yeah, it was pretty selfish to start with. I mean, it was just yeah, the most sure. fun. We know we'd write scenes and send them backwards and forwards. A lot of it was was written, in fact, as direct messages on social media, you know. So, you know, the whole thing was 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 a joy. And um, there's a lot of swearing in it. You know, we were, I'm, I'm really delighted yesterday. We had a one reviewer on a on a internet site who was so shocked by the swearing in the book that they wrote a list of all of the swear words from worst to least bad and then then and then tallied the number of times that they appeared in the book so yeah thank you for that work yeah we have a we have a rundown yeah there's definitely a spreadsheet out there one of our characters is from london i mean you know that he's gonna swear that's just that's just how it is of course yeah but but it's not nature writing i mean it's really not nature writing there's there's a lot of brand brands and jokes and and there's a lot of horror in it, and it's a big romance as well. We mm. we basically took every single genre we loved and we kind of mushed them together. Absolutely, yeah, it was fun. No, uh, as I understand it, novel writing is a you know so sort a of deeply personal undertaking, and perhaps for that reason, there aren't many two author novels in the world. What compatibilities do you need to have to pull it off? Well, you have to be able to fight your corner, I think, and also you need to know when to not fight your corner. Yeah. And to know when to stand down from something, because you're right, the whole process is deeply personal. You're laying your soul completely bare on a on a page or a computer, and you're just uh, pulling out your insides and telling people to like it. <laughs> and when you're writing with uh, somebody else, that's happening in real time. Yeah. While you're uh, you're editing or judging or critiquing, and often this is way before anybody else gets to um, judge it. So there's a lot of vulnerability when it comes to writing a, a novel with somebody else, for sure. Yeah, yeah it, there, there is. You have to be vulnerable and you have to you have to look at yourself. And I, I discovered some things early on that I really didn't like about myself. I mean, a couple of times Sin would send an edit back to me and like literally I had this awful voice in me going, but I've won awards. <laughs> like just <laughs> shocking stuff, you know. And it, but what's lovely about now is that you know all that vulnerability and all that working to create a kind of framework of really deep trust about our different strengths and our different weaknesses and has created a book now that when we read it, which I don't do very often because you know it's done now, but like it's very hard for us to know who wrote which bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are actually the fights that we get into now. Is uh, yeah, we we talk about the best parts and which parts that we like, and then we say you wrote that part, and then no, you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. 
It's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> right. <laughs> we've better we've better come to the premise of the podcast. So I've um I've asked you to pick out the five video games you'd like to put on your very own uh mini Atari, mini Mega Drive type thing. <laughs> um this is the first two person uh my perfect console I've done. So the way I've asked you to do it is split it up. So you've each picked two games that are personal to you, and then the final game is one that you both agree on. Um, so we're going to do them in chronological order. So Helen, your your first choice is the is the oldest. So we'll come to that one from February 1981. Tell us about this. What's the game and why do you love it? The game is called Gorf. I have to say that in a terrible fake accent to replicate the terrible. In fact, this 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 arcade game, you know, was was wonderful for many many reasons. One of which it had this speech simulator, which is you know very early doors, and it used to come out with these kind of weird noises as you approach the cabinet. And some of them I I still you know until yesterday when I was doing a bit of research, I didn't know what they were, and I discovered that the one I I didn't understand was feed me coins, which you know fair enough. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a it's a really interesting game for me because there was a place we used to go on holiday every year called Southwold on the east coast of Britain, which has become a kind of Chelsea on sea now. It's incredibly posh, but back then it was very run down. It had a little eighties video arcade and it had, you know, all the usual suspects. It had, you know, asteroids and Defender and Invaders and kind of, you know, Battle Zone and But Gorb was my favourite for a number of reasons. One is that it had you know, a series of different kind of boards where you went through kind of Galaxians and there were scary things where, you know, lasers would come down. You had to dodge the lasers. It was incredibly stressful for a kind of, you know, sort of, you know, 12-year-old to play. And it would insult you as you played, which was hilarious. It would sort of say, you know, too bad, space cadet, you know, you're rubbish. And I remember watching someone going through these different boards and I had this kind of sudden, like, lock. And none of the other games had this effect on me that, that I really needed to get to the, I needed to, to finish at least the first, you know, because you'd go through as a space cadet and then you would go back and it would get harder and you'd go through all the boards again. And I did it. I got to the end and I shot up the, the spaceship. So I feel that was a huge deal in my young life that I successfully got there. Was there anyone watching you while you while you pulled off this feat? This weird sort of very, very kind of skinny, pale-faced, weird child. No, I doubt it. No, I, I don't think so. But it was it was really fun. You know, there was something about the, you know, that game. I... I I was sort of saying to Sin yesterday, actually, that I found it an emulator, and, and in fact, no, I found it just a walkthrough on, on on YouTube, and I watched it, and I literally felt my body move from side to side as if I was kind of moving the the joystick to to play it. You know, these things come incredibly deep. Mm. You know that that game was was it was. I don't know. There were many things I wanted to do in my life, but. There was a time when I was about eleven or twelve, yeah, probably about twelve, when that was all I wanted to do was just was just beat that spaceship at the end with the bouncing robots. It was great. It was a phenomenal cabinet. Um, I have very fond, not fond memories. But again, it's a bit like kind of Desert Island Discs in that you know, you choose a game. The game represents not just itself, but like exactly who you were at that time. And and it was a very weird time in life, you know, to be a kind of you know before you're a teenage, you're not quite sure who you are or what you're doing, and um, just losing yourself in a game like that was was kind of magical. So yeah, it I'm choosing Gore f- for the fact that it generates a very, very visceral memory of who I was back then. You've you've written before that you wanted as a child you wanted to be a naturalist. When did you when did you first feel that urge and know that that was a life you could pursue? Very early on. I I, I grew up in this weird place um called Teckles Park, which was a <laughs> it was a kind of a 
rundown country estate in the middle of a town in Surrey, owned by the Theosophical Society, who, you know, very esoteric kind of religious society. Um, and I just, I was the only kid there. I ran wild in this kind of formal parklands and gardens. And I would kind of run, you know, go into the pond and haul out newts and grass snakes. And I, I basically wanted to be a naturalist. And I was, again, thinking about this because like a, probably from age six or seven, that's what I wanted to be. And then I got a ZX Spectrum, you know, 48K in 1982. And then there was a whole period where I really wanted to do computers. You know, I kind of learned basic and I kind of- Oh, you did? Yeah, I had a lot of fun playing, you know, all these kind of, you have know, time gate. Oh my God, you know, it was amazing. There came this sort of weird point where I sort of felt that, that I wasn't supposed to do that. I think it might've been that kind of weird gendered point where mm -hmm. I sort of felt that coding and computers were a boy's thing and I probably should just do nature. And I, I hadn't really thought about that until quite recently. But yeah, I think that was that was definitely a kind of pressure from the outside. So, I mean, I did I sort of turned away from gaming up computers in a way that I think Sin didn't. But there have always been these kind of like occasional little games that really have got under my skin. Yeah, Sin, how did your childhood compare? So the, the you described being in San Francisco, obviously quite metropolitan, even though it's coastal, and then going to Ireland. To, was, were you indoorsy and outdoorsy because of that? Um, I think that, well, because uh, the first part of my life, really, um, San Francisco to L.A. kind of a thing. We were in uh, um, South Central L.A. And so there was outdoorsiness, but not in the same kind of way that there would be in Ireland. And eventually it became a case of there was nothing to do inside the house in, in 90s Dublin. So you went outside and you, you figured something out to do <laughs> But I did get the, the usual experience where I didn't have a console, but somebody I knew had a console. So I would sit around and watch them play or demand that I play or whatever else. And the um, very close family friends, their teenage boys had a SNES and a NES actually. And uh, so my first, I think my first ever video game that I really cared about was a mana game. No, secret, secret of Mana, you mean? Secret of Mana, yeah. And I, I I, cared about it because there was a lot more going on in it than jumping on a Goomba. <laughs> but I was still not turned on enough, didn't care about the story. I just liked that there was new things to see each time you moved around. So mm. I have yet to go back and play that, by the way. I, I'm terrified to go back to um, to Secrets or even the new ones. Yeah, it holds up, I think. <laughs> I was such a JRPG person anyway, so I feel like I would bring the the new stuff into the old stuff and I wouldn't be fair. So I tend to stay away from it. Yeah. This is what nostalgia does to people. They they <laughs> deify stuff that they can't touch. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So um Helen, after university you worked at a falcon and ostrich breeding farm in rural Wales. <laughs> God. It was a Balkan breeding farm. The ostrich thing was a sidebar. Sideline. Yeah, I didn't really like those very much, but the, the Balkans were cool. Well, I mean, one of one of the most vivid essays in your collection, Vesper Flights, you describe a night when you happened upon a wounded ostrich while out walking with your boss. Tell us that story, what you remember of it. Leave it. Asking me to tell me tell tell you the story. It's so grim. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things that happens. You know, we were the boss's wife who we I did not get on with very well. And I were walking the fences because, you know, ostriches are very dangerous. So you have to have fences around the, the their enclosures. And this ostrich had, you know, unfortunately somehow got its leg caught in the wire and broken its leg. It's a horrible compound fracture, like I think the night before. And it was lying there and it was clearly like doomed. And I looked at it. I looked at the boss's wife and I just thought, I have to, I have to put this poor thing out of its misery. So I searched my pockets and came out with a 
a Jessup's novelty penknife from a key ring. So I hit this thing over the head with a with a with a rock or a brick and cut its throat. And my boss's wife didn't speak to me for weeks. And and you know it was really grim, right? But like at the at the same time, you know, it was one of those situations where it really was need must. You know, this thing was really suffering. Um, so yes, yes. I mean, you know, I haven't shot many people up in video games, but I have killed an ostrich with a brick and a novelty <laughs> penknife. So poor thing. I, I still feel very sorry for it. It had a, you know, it was really, really grim situation. Thanks for that, Simon. Thank you for, for making it. <laughs> well, <what? laughs> the reason I connected to it, I think, is because I grew up in South London, but in my grandparents lived in Devon and I used to go work on their farm in the summers. And one summer, I must have been like 11 or 12, and there was like a very sick goose and I had to stand there while someone shot it in the back of the head and then asked me to bury it. So that's cool. Oh, wow. Okay, I feel your trauma. I'm just solidarity. I feel it. I'm just so sorry. Geese oh, love well. to kill as well then. Yeah, yeah. It's very vivid in my memory. Well, Vale, vale Ostrich, R.O.P. Ostrich, R.O.P. Goose. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sin, have you ever bludgeoned a wounded animal to death? Not yet, but the year's still young. <laughs> We're no longer in lockdown, I suppose. There's a bigger chance. So. You, can go out, you can go out and do whatever you like. <laughs> I did not expect this to be a, the, the way the conversation would go. But maybe yeah. in, terms of, in terms of pets, okay, so Helen, you've, I mean, I, you wouldn't describe the falcons as pets, I know, but, but you've obviously had a very close relationship with, with animals in, in your life as well. Um, Sin, has that been something that you've experienced as well? Yeah, well, I'm a I'm a dog and horse person. Like I said, we went from LA to Dublin. We actually moved to uh, Ballymun, where at the time there was just essentially free roaming horses everywhere. And as a child, you you learn to ride them, or you get run over. Essentially, that moved on to a lot of when we moved to Donegal, um, going to different stables and enjoying like show jumping stuff like that. And um, and I just really get dogs. Uh, I'm just one of those really boring dog people who <laughs> will stand up for dogs before people. Uh, and I, st- I will stand by that. I will absolutely choose a dog over a person most of the time. Well, okay. Let, let's come to the second game here, where which is a game in which you have to choose people, I would say, over dogs. Um, but uh, tell us about this. Well, this is from the year 2000. Uh, what's the game, Sin, and why do you love it? Yeah, The Sims. I think that a lot of people who knew The Sims as it was in 2000 would understand the bleak grimness of the game as well. It wasn't just a case of building your own home and getting these people to live inside that home, which is what it was marketed as. But the actual reality of it is this crushing, endless capitalist nightmare (laughs) where... um, where you wake up to go to a job that your sim hates and you have to force them to eat something or else they'll die. And then, you know, maybe to pass the time, they push out a baby and then that baby becomes a child that never leaves. And then they have to keep going to this job that they hate and make friends that they don't care about. 
And then eventually you get bored of them and you build them a little swimming pool and take the ladder away. And that's, I think, everybody's <laughs> oh experience of the first Sims. Um, and it sounds bleak. You guys are reacting like you've never played this, but that's 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 the reality. And there are different, like you get, um, especially in the first Sims, there were um, this concept of uh, expansion packs was mm-hmm. completely new to my little brain at the time when I was taking over my friend Aoife's PC to play her uh, game of The Sims. There was like, there was magic packs and there were nightlife packs and there were pet packs and all kinds of stuff. But essentially it gave you the same cyclical, <laughs> unending nightmare. And the, this this uh, this doesn't really change as you go through the rest of the games in the franchise. And I've played every single one of them. I've owned nearly every expansion pack. It's uh, <laughs> sickness. I I never get out of the same circle. And I don't think that anybody else does where you, you choose this life for this sim that you've created. Mm. And it always ends up being something that's actually quite depressing. Where it's in and out, job after job, and then your sim dies. And you can create stories for them, but they're all in your head. I'm going to butt in because this reminds me of like that thing that people say about pe- pets and how, you know, pets are middle class kids way of learning about death. That's why people have hamsters or I don't know what they are. <laughs> that was that was the line I was given. Is The Sims basically yeah. that? Yeah. And I think it's also it's really important to point out that in 2000s, a lot of kids played The Sims and they found out that like boys could kiss boys and girls could kiss girls. And that was like a huge thing. And actually, it was one of the main big controversies for this game back in the day and it continues to be one of the only games that doesn't like weight sexuality for any characters Mm. it's entirely up to you and the stories that you tell and so yeah it taught kids about death and it also taught them about you know um the grimness of death and taxes it also it allowed a lot of kids to see a world that they weren't allowed to see in Mm -hmm. the 2000s for sure yeah, I wrote a piece actually about this. That I interviewed one of the programmers on it who put in the capacity for same-sex relationships sort of as a... And, and it was supposed to be taken out, but then it, it when they were doing a showing at E3, two of the characters just dynamically kissed and uh, and it be, then became a big po- positive element, I guess, for certain sections of the community. So It's huge. It's huge. And the community itself, even to touch on that... Is a really weird one. The Sims community is uh, bizarre in the same way that I would say huge franchises have a bizarre community, kind of like Star Wars or Star Trek. You get a lot of very insular thinking and um, very strong opinions. But the other thing that goes with that is like this deep love um, for this franchise because all of these people in the community have been playing since they were children and they're grown adults now and they learned to code or animate because of the sims because they wanted to mod the sims or they wanted to create different stories for their sims that was more than the game was giving them so it's actually created this huge i guess economy but bigger than that this real big world that these people live in and it's it's wonderful to watch honestly planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, let's uh, come back to your stories, both of you. So, yeah, tell me that. Tell me how you both became writers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So, I mean, I mean, professional, professionally, I became a writer. I was attempting to do a PhD, which I never finished. In fact, I was, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD during lockdown, like many people <laughs> got a diagnosis. And one of the one of the killer questions I was asked by the consultant was, you know, did you finish your PhD? And I said, of course not. And he just laughed. And he went, yeah, you've got you've got ADHD. Of course you have. <laughs> um, so I, I was um, when I was working in the history of science, um, specifically in the in the history of natural history and the way in which we relate to the natural world. And I kept coming across sort of amazing analytical frameworks and, and stuff that that I, I, I just became more and more frustrated that no one outside the academy was going to ever know about this stuff. It was just going to mm. be in papers and journals that cost a fortune in life and libraries. So I thought, you know, I'd really like to write for everyone. This stuff's really fascinating. So that's what I started doing. And then I wrote a book about the cultural history of falcons, which kind of did fine and 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 then my dad died and I trade this gospel and you know wh- while that was happening I I knew that there was a story here that was going on about wildness and love and loss and grief that was way older and bigger than me and I knew that I would I really wanted to 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 write it and I think you know when that came out you know it did really well much to my astonishment um, I didn't expect it to I just had enough money to 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 survive by writing so I I quit my academic really my academic sort of job really then and, and continued and I I love it I love writing I mean I'm you know there are days when you know you, you you cry onto your desk and there are days when you feel like you're a god you know it's 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 never boring it's sometimes very distressing and stressful but there's nothing like it I mean you know it's it's what I'm for I think writing so I'm very glad and, and thankful and grateful that I'm able to do it hmm. Sin how about you I have uh, a, a real normal answer for this, I think. I've just been writing stories since I was about eight, I guess, maybe younger. I learned how to write when I was five, and I'd been making up little stories and songs and stuff. My parents talk about this all the time, that I would make up narratives and and songs from the age of three, and then they made the mistake of teaching me how to actually write them down. Then I guess when we moved to Ireland, I started to dabble in horror and like really like little baby kid horror because I was again I was six years old I was seven years old and um and it was always scary stories about something around the corner or whatever else but this kept on going I ended up writing stories with friends growing up little collaborative stories and I think that everybody had these games where they would write stories with their friends I just got real 
into it, I think. And this kept going well into my adult life. I never really thought that I would do it professionally. I thought that it would constantly be a a hobby thing that just kept me sane. And it continues to keep me sane. It's just that I now can live doing it. But telling stories is something that, like Helen said, it's what I'm for. Mm. I I enjoy it. And I think that it's important to have storytellers. Mm. It's one of like, I you know, along with the other one, it's one of the oldest professions. And so it's important, I think, not to blow our own horns too much, but that's why we still have books and movies and TV shows and everything else. Mm. And I enjoy being part of it. And I'm, yeah, like Helen, I'm really grateful. I was interested to learn that you've both written anonymous fan fiction on the internet before. And you have it? Simon, tell the truth. Have you not, Simon? You must have ever tell the truth. You have. I haven't posted it. But <laughs> like one, one step behind you. But yeah, tell, tell me more. I, 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 have a, I have a less long history, I think, with, with, with internet fan stuff that, than Sin, but um, I, I adore, I've, I've, I've long adored this ecosystem of people just for no money, for no economic gain, you know, which is, you know, which very, very threatening for lots of people. The people are involved are often, you know, uh, female presenting or queer. So that's also very threatening. And, you know, just, just reworking, you know, the kinds of films and books and, and series around us and, and, and making some of the, some of the stuff I read in, on the internet, some fanfic has been among the most affecting and technically proficient writing I've ever read in my life. And, you know, I always laugh about it. You know, I look at, you know, something like, you know, Dickensian on the BBC and there it is. That's fanfic, right? It's just, it's not, it's, it's written by, you know, powerful people who get to get it on the, on the telly. So there's, there's a lot of kind of, there's still a lot of weird kind of distrust or dislike or kind of sneering at, at, at internet fic. And I, I think it's, you know, it's deeply, deeply sad that that's still the case. It's, it's mm. extraordinary. Especially mm. since we have all these, like you said at the top, um, reboots and reimaginings yeah. and everything else. And if that's not someone who was a fan a while ago, then getting a chance to rewrite something that they love for money, if that's mm. not fanfic, I don't know what is. I mean, the it, constant retellings of Batman that we have, that's all fanfic. That's <laughs> Christopher Nolan. The ultimate fanfic writer. I'm just I'm saying <laughs> what? what I'm seeing. And yeah. so and um and every single time that there's, you know, a guest writer on something like Doctor Who, that's someone coming in who mm. loves the source material and who's getting to write fanfic for a wider audience. And it's always seen, like Helen said, as something that's lesser because what it's free online mm. and people do it to enjoy their lives and often yeah um female presenting or queer but honestly people are missing out they 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 see these things as frivolous and it isn't it's um it's beautiful stuff and it also teaches a lot of people how to write in ways that they wouldn't normally get to learn how to write a lot of this is gatekept you know all the different courses or universities that you can go to that are blocked off by a lot of people. They can't get there, but they can write online and And they can get feedback and often really brutal as well. Like, yeah, really brutal stuff. It's going to be brutal. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things we we tried to do with with, with Profit, you know, we wrote it, was we always wanted it to feel like, and I think Sin came up with a perfect sentence for this description of we wanted it to feel like, like fan fiction of a canon that doesn't exist you know mm. the, the characters they're not based on any particular people from you know any 
they're, they're kind of they're a kind of odd couple, our main characters that are drawn from a million different sources from kind of, you know. But we use a lot of the formal strategies of fic writing to write profit. And we did that out of love and thanks. Yeah. And I think that it, what a lot of people talk about the different parts of fic that we put into profit. But I think the main thing that I think is important is we imbued these characters with with love and history that a lot of like original work sprung from the ground doesn't get straight away. Hmm. And we we put that in first thing. And I think that that's, that's really what we mean when we say we wanted it to read like fic. A lot of fan fiction has so much love and respect for the characters and the plots and everything else. And we wanted that for profit uh, while we were writing it. And plus, we were writing for each other. So we... We had to make it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Uh, let's come to the third game then on your list. Sin, this is, uh, the, this is another one of yours. So this is from 2001. Tell us about this. This is Silent Hill 2. think that this is probably the easiest game to talk about because for a start everybody will agree that it's one of the best games ever made whether or not you're into horror that's i don't think that really comes into it silent hill 2 provides this hugely atmospheric look into grief and abuse and trauma and loss in a way that video games weren't doing at the time we follow James Sunderland through this absolute nightmare of figuring out his past and his um, late wife's past and their connection to this town, Silent Hill, and Silent Hill's past, if you're willing to look that deep into it, and how the town and how different psyches affect different people and how innocence and guilt come into it. I remember playing this for the first time. It was, I think, on PlayStation 2. And I had already played Silent Hill 1, and it didn't really grip me in the same way that uh, Silent Hill 2 did. Because the way that it was written was so bizarre. It was meant for you to feel like there was a disconnect between you and James. That doesn't <clears throat> usually happen with player characters. You're meant to connect with them and want to fight their fight and everything else. It's not what you get with James instantly he puts you off and you feel just one step away from him mm -hmm. everybody else in the game are they're so strange and they feel like they're having different conversations than the one that you're having with them and it's all unsettling and i loved it it made my skin crawl it gave me nightmares i became absolutely obsessed with the lore and the history of it all i still listen to the soundtrack to like and laugh but to calm down it's <laughs> and you do have a really unusual response to horror it is often said to me that the the horror is like a 
Absolutely, like a straight down the line way of sin getting kind of relaxed. It's like, yeah, right. What's that about? I, I don't no know. <laughs> I don't want to. I have no answers for you. I do. I'm. I'm really my chill out. My white noise. I guess is a horror game. Let's plays. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just enjoy listening to. Uh, I guess video game boys screaming mm-hmm. <laughs> while falling asleep. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring up let's plays because that's how there's a whole younger generation who's discovered Silent Hill through YouTube let's plays, right? Because they were too too young to have played it when it came out but uh, it's got a real following hasn't it because people love watching it yeah and it's great to watch because this the game itself is not just a one-for-one um again it's not a jump on the goombas kind of a situation it is a story being told it's one of the strongest i think arguments to be made for video games are art and um, and that goes into even joke endings with the uh, the the famous dog ending when James opens a door and there's a Chiba at the um, c- computer console controlling his every move and that's wonderful but it came out of nowhere and it means everything to the community as well but it has such a following this cult following because of the story that it tells and because of the let's plays that are basically everybody my age trying to get everybody not my age to play it and watch it and love it. Mm. But there's the remake coming out. There's a bunch of movies that are based on Silent Hill 2 that nearly got it. And there's a, I think there's a new movie as well for Silent Hill 2 that's being uh, announced. And I think that that's a good thing. I know that a lot of people tend to get really nervous about movie adaptations and reboots or remasters. If you have something as strong as Silent Hill 2, bad ports and reboots and everything else can't really stop it because it continues to be amazing. And I would play it over and over and over and over again until I die. It's amazing. Brilliant. It's a bit profit, sin. Be careful. <laughs> like, you know, and Gar hasn't played the game. You, you'll play the game first and then tell me the not. I was just thinking, I was just laughing actually, thinking about my game choices and how basically, like, one of them is, you know, a, 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 an arcade cabinet that's like, you know, it's just a few minutes long. And then and then the other one's like 10 minutes long. And you're choosing these nominally men. <laughs> like, basically, in terms of like time or your life, and yeah, it, yeah, your life. I, I'm like, oh, I, it's 10 minutes, you know, let's do this. Well, I, I, as well, I know people who have um, saves for The Sims 4 that are like as old as The Sims 4 itself, which I think is like 15 years now. And that's insane to me. So, you know, there are, there, it swings and roundabouts, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to come back to the point you were making just before about, I suppose, the way fanfic is quite often looked down on. And I'm just interested in the pecking order of literature. Um, you know, as someone who, who writes, has written lots about video games in my life, you know, it doesn't get much uh, much lower than that on the totem pole, I'd say. And I, you know, I also write history books and the people will react to me very differently when I'm talking about that kind of work. Yeah, yeah I'm interested for you both. What's the, I suppose, writing a sci-fi thriller? Obviously, you're playing with convention and doing lots of clever, interesting things with that. But, but also, that's kind of where they put it on the bookshelf in Waterstones, right? <laughs> so, you know, how's that compared, Helen, for you between, you know, writing memoir, which is, I suppose, more high status? It's hilarious. 
So a couple of things happened. I mean, but I just before you we said that, just one thing I've I've always enjoyed the kind of hierarchies that that are around us. You know, when I used to do this story of science, I used to love the hierarchy of natural history. So you know, like bird people at the top, and then there's like you know you go down there's like you know there's insect people, and then you go down and there's plant people, and then right at the bottom you've got mosses, and but they look down on the li- they look down on the lichen people. So so basically it's, it's everywhere. Everyone's got to have a hierarchy. Got to have a hierarchy. So yeah, I mean, the thing that's been really interesting and fascinating to me is that because we wrote a book that was not just a sort of love letter to genre, but because it's a mixed a book of mixed genres, it's got a, a bunch of different genres at the same time doing unexpected things. That quite sometimes people will come to it, and because they're familiar with the genre, they think the book is in. They read the book and they they kind of get cross because it's not exactly what the genre is supposed to give give them. And I think that kind of sense that genre is very often. And I have this with kind of murder mystery books. You know, I want a murder mystery book to be exactly what I want. It is always you know I want it to be as it's supposed to be. I want to get in the you know bath and read a book where everyone like you know we find out at the end who did it. So I think that this it's really interesting to discover that there are lim- there are sort of weird limiting factors to working in genre that I hadn't expected. So with nonfiction, I feel you can be more experimental. And people give you more latitude to occupy that role as a kind of narrator. But fiction is is more tricky. People come to it with expectations and then they get crossed if they if they're not fulfilled. So that that's been a that's been eye opening for me. Hmm. But yeah, no, I think I think the kind of great hierarchy, the great chain of being in, in literature and, and is non it's just nonsense, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah. You're either a good writer or you're not. That's kind of it, really. It doesn't matter what you're writing about. Well, that's true. Sin, as a as a young person, do you think some of those hierarchies are, are being sort of knocked away uh, with the new, newer generations coming through? With with uh, any luck, um, because you're right. It's really just the shelf and water stones uh, that that your your book is being put onto. Any book is being put onto, and the really funny thing about it is that. There's all these shelves and there's all these genres and everybody's vying for the table with What's no the, what romantic- labels. Romanticy. Romanticy. That's yeah, the romantic- one you really don't like hearing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine as a genre. I just don't like the word. Yeah. <laughs> don't like the word. Um, but I think that, you know, there's, and this is another thing. This is a, um, a good point to be made, actually, in regards to things like romanticy and, and everything else. And these new genres emerging or people holding on to, um, old genres that maybe the industry tried to to bury, right? So we have, I, I prefer to say that um, Profit is a techno thriller. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's not like you're going to see a techno thriller shelf. And so that's that's difficult to categorize and it's difficult for booksellers to, to tell someone what a book is like. And so I really do, I feel for, <laughs> I feel for everybody out there that, that that's dealing with that. But I think that it's, good actually to try to challenge our expectations of stories and books and writers and genres because even within the simple ideas of sci-fi or romance or fantasy or anything else there's so many different tiers to that and different levels that we can get to and understand how someone might approach a genre that's different from somebody else and that's important as well yeah, and, and it's really, I mean, I mean, it's really interesting too, like, you know, again, I mean, I think the boundaries to me aren't even necessarily between different art forms. I mean, Profit has more in common with some computer games than it does with a lot of sci-fi. Yeah. Like, it, 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 the boundaries don't seem to be, you know, necessarily just literary. The, the boundaries kind of now are very, very kind of 
really do resonate across different different media in a way that I think is becoming much more familiar to people as a, mm. as a way of thinking about art. And it's a very good thing to do, yeah, mm. um, to open up our eyes to different medias, not lock ourselves in. Uh, Although to one thing, Prophet was once described. What was it? A dad thriller, which made make a dad <laughs> thriller. Yeah, we like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. If we yeah. could get a shelf with just Prophet on it that says dad, dad thriller. thrillers. Yeah, but very, very. I have to be very cool, dad. Cool dad thrillers. Thriller. Yeah, cool dad thriller. <laughs> right, Helen. Let's come to game number four. This one's uh, one of yours from 2003. Yeah, and yet again, yeah. I mean, this, this this game's ten minutes long. You know what am I going to say? <laughs> it's, it was again a time in my life. So it was it's a it's a really beautiful game called Samarost. It's a Czech game that I, again, I wasn't really playing anything. And then someone just sent me a link to this little flash point and click game. But the aesthetic of this game absolutely blew me away. So it's a little kind of, you have a, you play a little, a little gnome in a onesie <laughs> who lives on a tiny planet, more about the planet uh, later in the textures of this, of this game. And then you discover that there's a, another little planet coming right towards you and you have to get in your spaceship, which is made of a little tin of sausages, and you fly to this other planet and then you have to go through a series of, you know, things you have to do in order to stop the planet crashing into you. So the, it, it's really fun. It had this extraordinary soundtrack, which has been replaced now, I suspect, for copyright editions. It, it was kind of like a muted trumpets, a kind of very slow, kind of hypnotic jazz uh, soundtrack um, yeah. with delightful things. You know, you'd click on a goat and it would bleat and fall off a hill. It was lots of things to do. But basically the, the reason this game, the reason I adored it was because of the, the texture of it. So everything in it is made of, well, not everything, but most of, most of the kind of things in it are made out of photographic bits of you know, tree roots, fungi, burrs, mosses, lichens, there's rusted screws and nails, like everything's deeply, deeply kind of, I don't know, you just want to sort of bury your face in the moss in these hills. And and the, and the way that it plays with scale too, you know, there's some, actually some on Reddit, you're gonna, you can read about how everyone, people have actually got one of these tins that a spaceship was made of and it worked out that the gnome that you're playing is exactly 2.5 centimetres high. So there's kind of a fun thing there. Um, Good job, Reddit. It's I know, right? I love Reddit, 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 kind of getting deep into it. You know, it's like, oh, you should put the tin in a museum. But this, this is the first time I saw something which there's a, it, it was really kind of like playing between the worlds of what I, you know, I grew up with an age when computer games for me were, had they, they had to kind of be like, you know, Tron. They had to, to gesture to a future that was kind of like past Star Wars. It was part kind of like, you know, what, what would become kind of cyberpunk. It was all about a future that, and I adored Tron. I was, I was, I was confessing to Sin yesterday that I had a terrible crush on Kevin Flynn. When I saw Tron, when I was over, and then later I watched it again, and I was like, "Well, he's an asshole," you know. But um, <laughs> but this was a, this is a game that was built out of a a kind of tradition that seemed very European, very mm, very not yes. not that of computer games as I imagined them, and that was beautiful and and kind of weirdly troubling in a way. It kind of itched away at you this this these landscapes. So yeah, Samarost for the fact that I played it a lot because I wanted to live in that world at the time, yeah. and the aesthetics were. 
unusual and new and beautiful and very dear to my heart as a, you know, I'd been out with moss hunting people. I'd been out looking for moss species. It's one of the most boring forms of natural history you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I feel really bad saying this and I hope they don't listen to this podcast. I doubt they do. You can say that as a writer on birds, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, well, no, they, but moss people, you know, they basically, you know, they just wander around graveyards with like hand lenses on their hands and knees with their bums in the air looking at mosses and coming out with Latin names. I mean, I, I tried it, but like... I, I But okay, wait. would that not change a little bit if you were out with um, the little glasses looking at lichens and mosses and you had the samaras soundtrack in your <laughs> headphones would that not change the- I should have thought of that it might have because uh, I know at one point I was I was so bored by the moss hunting again I'm sorry it's it is very very niche and 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 it's very very complex and they're very hard mosses and I pointed out a short-eared owl that was was hunting voles in the field next door and they were all so dismissive and I was I remember I remember saying to them at least it moves <laughs> So anyway, yeah, Samaros, because it's a natural historian's game and it's very, very beautiful. It's a beautiful game. And you could still, yeah, and it's still, there are, I think there are three versions now and highly recommend it. That's the equivalent of a naturalist street fight, I think you're describing there. Brutal. <laughs> Brutal. Blood on the moss. Yeah. Right. So I guess what you're saying is that M is for moss wouldn't have been a bestseller, perhaps. Um. <laughs> I don't know. Unless, I, unless I'd made moss into a kind of, you know, a sort of assassin or something rather than a... Do you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't do this. We're in the middle of a podcast, but the lovely story about the the, the, the Bletchley Park crypto, cryptogam guy. So mosses and ferns and liverworts are called cryptogams. That's that's the, the, the their, you know, the, the, their classification. And when they were recruiting for Bletchley Park, they recruited this guy from Cambridge who was... Uh, they thought he was into, uh, he was into cryptograms, <laughs> codes, but he was actually into mosses and liverworts and ferns and he turned up and didn't know what was going on. But I know it's completely pointless. I mean, obviously his 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 place there was you know he didn't know what didn't know what was going on. But then when they found the Enigma documentation that had been sort of picked out of I think a a, a sunk U boat. I think yes, there was a lot of stress about how they were going to how could they read this? It was just completely soaked with seawater. They couldn't open the pages; it would all rip and everything. And he was like, well, "I don't know how to to uh, preserve <laughs> specimens." And he used all the inf- all the knowledge he had for preserving mosses and and seaweeds and and live, you know all these kind of things to be able to kind of like dry out these pages without just form information on them. So there you go. Amazing, outstanding. Um, Helen, can I just ask you very briefly about H's for Hawk, which is, I, th- I think, the book that changed your life. Yeah. I as could, I mentioned. I could buy a car after it. They didn't break down every 10 minutes. It was brilliant. <laughs> I mentioned in the intro, it's a memoir about the death of your father and dealing with that grief by training a goshawk. Was there any part of you that recoiled from writing such an intimate book? Uh, very interesting. It took me seven years to be able to really write that book. I, I had a few tries earlier than that but I was still far too close to that loss uh, my dad was a really lovely bloke and very dear friend as well as my dad and his he had this you know very sudden death and the world kind of blew away and it, it really messed me up and uh, after seven years I had enough distance from the person that I was back then to be able to write the book and use myself in the book as a character rather than me which was a very weird experience sort of doubling experience because you know, I could remember what happened that year with extraordinary clarity. I think grief sometimes does that. But also I knew that the person I was writing about was someone else. And quite right. often I'd get quite fed up and cross with them while I was writing. Like, what were you thinking, you know? So people sometimes ask me about, you know, it's, it is a very, very emotionally vulnerable book. I do say a lot of stuff in there. But and I, I tried to write it initially with, with a little bit more 
I was a little bit more careful about putting it all on the page, but it didn't really work. I needed to be really honest in it. And I think readers know, and I think Sid and I have talked about this before, like readers really know when you're being honest. They know when you're holding back and they know when you're sort of doing little deceitful kind of like, oh, it wasn't quite like this. You have to be like, the words have to be cut from rock for it to work. So mm. I'm glad I did that, even though it was, you know, it was a bit of a hell of a, a, hell of a book to write. It mm-hmm. took me to some very dark places. I suppose even when you're being extremely honest, just the process of writing a book is sort of imposing order on like the chaos of life, right? And, it, you know, that can be obviously very helpful when you're trying to understand your own story. But also the risk is, I guess, that when you start arranging facts, things can get tidy, right? And you maybe lose something. Yeah, yeah but you always do. I mean, I, you know, writing a book like that, writing a, a memoir is always, you're always walking through the ashes of all the ways you could have told the story. <laughs> so there's always grief partly involved in, in writing about anything that has happened to you in that way that you, you have to choose the path that will be the story and you have to destroy all the others. It's a kind of quite a violent thing to do in many ways. So, but that's show business. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is to sell a story. <laughs> uh, the, the title for the book, it's perfect. Did it come quickly? Yeah, I was, I was house-sitting for a friend in Brighton and I was trying to fix their Wi-Fi router and it just fell into my head. And like it was straight up, you know, HS HS Falk, you know, it's like a a sort of primer in how to how to read the world again after a after a bereavement. But you know, the H stands for all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was honestly out of nowhere that one. I wish I wish I could kind of have a better story to tell you, but that's one of those things that your subconscious provides you with rather than anything else. So no, that's exactly the story it needs to be, isn't it? So. Um, Sin, are you tempted to write a, a memoir? A memoir? No, God, no. <laughs> it's been floated. I have a very interesting family um, in Ireland and a very interesting family in America. And it has been floated, especially for the Irish family. There's a lot of you couldn't write it moments, you know. And so it's always been an ongoing joke. But I think that they're really an inspiration, not a uh, not a not a complete one for one source. So certainly a lot of what I write about is about family and understanding dynamics within that. And, uh, and, and so they are constantly Mm. an inspiration, but no, an actual memoir about my life and the comings and goings, I feel like it isn't interesting enough yet. Maybe, maybe another time. There have to be one chapter on watching Silent Hill 2 Let's Plays, I guess. I could do that. I could absolutely <laughs> write a chapter on Silent Hill That would be, that would be very avant-garde to just write, just write that book. Just write, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do be- that. I'll, I'll write a chapter on Silent Hill 2 Let's Plays, but entirely in French. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, let's come to your fifth and your final game. This is the one that you've picked together, and I believe that you, you played together while working on Profit. So tell us about this one. There was this whole pandemic going on, and um, I was playing a lot of video games like everybody else who was actually playing video games at the time. It's just going one after the other after the other. And one of the games on my backlog was Control.
I started it in the middle of, we were already, me and Helen were already talking about a lot of different things and movies and books that we like. And I started it and I stopped it. And I went, Helen, I need to stream this so that you can you can watch this. And so I, I streamed a Twitch audience of one. I played Control uh, for Helen and it was gripping for both of us, I think. Different reasons, yeah. Like I wasn't yeah. I didn't play it, play it with you. I watched you play it and then I, I became I remember becoming obsessed with the altered objects in the in in the game. So I mean I don't know how much you want to kind of give sin, but 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 basically there are these kind of objects in the game that are that are that have been infused with kind of power from the collective unconscious and they behave in very weird ways. So there's like, you know, there's a I don't know, I'm trying to think of it. There's a, there's a, there's a floppy disk. The floppy the thermos. The thermos, the, the copy's always warm. And then there's like a, a a ramen lantern that attracts people. And there's like a, there's a VHS cassette that makes people catatonic if they, you know, they, they all have these kind of weird powers that have been given to them by people. And, and there's, again, this kind of weird Jungian kind of sense of the collective unconscious. And they're being held or looked after by this kind of secret government organization called the Federal Bureau of Control. Mm-hmm. And the whole game is set in their extraordinary, which I really want to talk about the architecture of their their headquarters. But this but is the main reason said, why yeah. I I brought it in. I was like, you have to see, yeah, this building. You have to see how it is and how it moves and how it works. Yeah, and what the light does and and the way that the brutalism of this building um works in the narrative of the, of the game. Because I I'm obsessed with brutalism anyway. It's a it's another problem. We ended up talking about for hours i think after the first stream just about atmosphere oh yeah the light and the kind of weird combination of the light yeah and and concrete dust and the ways in which you know these these spaces were deeply deeply in like kind of like in a kind of really meta way kind of digging deep into our own subconsciouses you know this sort of sense of a kind of hauntology i mean i've you know the sort of mark fisher sense of you know these objects being imbued with a kind of sense of an alternative future that never happened and how that's tied up with kind of capitalism and you know, these objects, like Sin sent me the, the kind of the, I don't know what the right word is, documentation. The documentation, yeah. You know, there's a lot of documentation in the game about these objects. And I remember sitting in the bath and going through them in my phone, reading them and just like, you know, the water was getting cold around me. And I think those, that notion of objects that had been granted power, not by some kind of supernatural alien type force, a la Stephen King's, but by <laughs> something much more complicated and to do with cultural history and, 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 and kind of the sort of tenets of late capitalism and where we are was and this notion of objects of being as being dangerous was definitely part of the the, the genesis of, of, of profit for sure there's also the uh the way that the story is told in control really really got to me i i played many people might know the the alan wake uh series as part of um the control narrative mm-hmm. and i played alan wake one it was fine. It, it was actually kind of spooky to play. I first played it when we were writing Prophet. So it was very difficult to be a writer in the middle of a novel while playing Alan Wake, who was struggling to write his novel. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was hard. <laughs> but, but Control itself took this extra step. I think Sam Lake, the writer and creator, really came into his stride in how he was telling these stories through places. And little asides with the characters and environment storytelling. Yeah, that whole, that the whole was, new weird stuff, the way that the yeah, places become boiled is it's very, very, very much. So it felt really a lot like you were playing through this kind of if Annihilation got 
a hold of the FBI. And it was it was really nice. I really enjoyed again, um, it calmed me down. It's my comfort game now. <laughs> so it really chills me out to hear the hiss uh doing their litany and uh it's really calming to fly around these brutalist buildings and things that can't exist and um and it's it's generally just a really good way of creating a space that holds a story there's a lot that you don't learn about the fbc and a lot that you don't learn about how it came to be and that's part of what makes it amazing is that it's it continues to be a mystery even when you learn about it no, totally. The, and, and the kind of the ways in which time and space and things move around in this building, that the, the headquarters itself is of this building is kind of alive and, 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 and sort of, you know, infinite in, in many ways. And it's based on a real building in New York, which is the, um, it's built a building called the Long Lines Building, which, you know, um, it's really funny. Like, I think in the game, is it, is it right? I'm, I'm trying to remember that, you, you know, it's very hard to find the, the Federal Bureau of Control building, the oldest building, unless, you know. It, you, know you need to know where the oldest house is. Oldest house, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then you'll see it. But when you're in New York, if you're ever in New York, you can see the oldest house. Yeah, the long ways everywhere so that you are. Basically, like, it's, it's sort of AT&T, but actually it's also a secret, you know, NSA hub um, where they scrape kind of stuff. It's it's kind of the head, headquarters of a, of a you know program called Titan Point. It's, it's a lot of stuff on the web about this this secret building. And the funny thing is, it's, it's, it's kind of like real the real world kind of inflecting you know, control inflecting the real world. But like every time this and I've been to New York, we're like, we must go and see this building. Yet we never summon. We never do. We never manage to get around there. Yeah. And it's like we always kind of eight blocks away and I can see it everywhere that I am whenever we're in New York. (laughs) And um and we never end up standing right out in front of it. And Mm. uh and really it's really fun, I think. Again, talking about sin about how like, you know, that the control is very, very closely related to the SCP Foundation, you know, on, on, online and how that relates to a whole bunch of kind of, you know, psychogeographical kind of works in art, like this sort of notion of this this haunted new weird landscape that we're all in and and and, and the vibe of kind of brutalist office architecture, you know, and, and you sort of think of severance and you think of like, you know, these these are kind of like thematic and these are sort of things that are kind of threaded through so much now that, you know, we feel that, you know, profit is just one part of this much larger kind of mm. ecosystem of, of thinking about where we are now. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Let's go through your console. So we've got uh, Gorf, The Sims, Silent Hill 2, Samarust and Control. I'm going to spend like two minutes on it every day and you're going to be like, right, let's go. Uh, <laughs> right. Get off. I'm, oh, no. here. I'm there for eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we need a we need a name for your console. I, I actually didn't give you a heads up on this, but hopefully you can decide on a name we can call it to market it to the world. Let, let's think about this for a moment. We have Gorf the Sims, Silent Hill Two, Samarast, and Control the Griefomatic Three Thousand. Oh yeah, that's 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 definitely going to sell a bunch of new. <laughs> yeah, Traumatron. Traumatron. Yeah, Traumatron. That's good. I think Traumatron is the way to go. I'd buy that. <laughs> right um well before i let you go i've loved this thank you so much thank for you talking it's been to me. it's been fun yeah i so obviously you know we've talked lots about nostalgia and your book is i suppose a cautionary tale about how nostalgia can be very comforting and reassuring but also you know at times destructive what's your tip on how to have a healthy relationship with the things we love from our past oh i, I can't give you any healthy tips about it all i'm <laughs> hopelessly like I don't know. I think I think just try and 
try and when you have an emotional response to something from your past try and think about the fact that you know we we're living in a world now that it's very hard to believe in or imagine a livable positive future you know it's very it's, it's very easy to turn back and say things were better then i really wish i had my bmx and my you know my captain crunch um it's funny i always choose american things but there you go yeah that's um, <laughs> like so you feel the pull we all feel the pull of nostalgia and we feel the pull of like capitalist nostalgia and consumerist nostalgia but we have to think about you know we need to think about how to live in a future and how to make that future happen and hiding and being trapped in those those kind of little oubliettes of, of, of 80s chocolate bars is not going to help anyone. Absolutely. I would say related and closely linked to your answer, Helen, is when you feel that pull, feel it, but try to trace it to the source. Like what's making you feel that and why is it making you feel that way and what may, wants you to feel that way? Why Why are they doing this? Why are they showing you these only 90s kids will remember and all this stuff? It's the real point behind all that. Because it can, you know, not to be too spooky about it, but it can actually be pretty sinister. You know, the intentions of locking people in this this safe past. And oh my God, and yeah, politically. Yeah, so, yeah, politically. Hugely. So yeah, absolutely. And so like, feel it. Those are your feelings. They're not bad, but like try to figure out why someone might want you to feel that way. Yeah. Hmm. Wonderful. Twilight's like theme player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for such an open and um, exhilarating conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Simon. Thank, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much to my guests, Helen McDonald and Sin Blaché. I was thrilled to have the chance to speak to them both. Uh, what an absolute treat. Uh, I wasn't. This is, of course, the first episode I've ever done with two guests concurrently. I did my best with the, with the editing of the episode. <laughs> uh, hopefully everything was clear. But yeah, I think it worked well, didn't it? Two games each and then one that they picked together. I think in particular, if you if you have read Profit, uh, if you haven't, then you should go and read Profit. It's out now in hardback with uh, with Penguin Books. The paperback is coming out in a month or two, so you can always queue that up. And of course, it's out on Kindle and eBooks and stuff. If you've if you've read Profit, then all the stuff that they were talking about, Control. Wow, how interesting! You will be able to see how that uh, really feeds into. Uh, as a as a very clear influence for the story of Prophet, uh, of course, you know the the book is drawing from a great many different places and traditions. But um, yeah, li- hearing hearing both of them talk about what they took from the game Control, a very fine game from a couple of years ago, of course, by Remedy Entertainment. Then yeah, it's just wonderful to hear how that game influenced their thinking, and as well, very gratifying. I imagine if you are someone who works in the video game making video games and you're editorial and you write some of those bits of text that accompany objects the law stuff that goes into games you probably were delighted by the image of helen mcdonald laying in the bath as it got cold around her reading the uh, all of the text for those items uh, it shows that yeah some people some people really do care all about the the fiction and the 
um, the backstory and the context that goes into into games as well. And uh, so, yeah, wonderful. If you've not read Helen MacDonald's H is for Hawk, it really is one of the best books of the last uh, decade. Yeah, decade. 2014 it came out. It's uh, it's just a masterly piece of memoir writing. You don't have to be into goshawks or falconry to get something out of the book. Wasn't it a treat as well to hear Sin talking about her love of Silent Hill 2? Yeah, I'm surprised that game's not being picked a few more times on the on the podcast so far. I think Susan Kalman picked Silent Hill, either the first one or the second one. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating game. And the remake that's coming out that Sin mentioned there, I'm sure that's going to introduce a whole new generation to, to Silent Hill 2. There's a fine book out about Silent Hill 2 written by Mike Drucker, an um, American writer. I think he's a... Co- he writes for Colbert and uh, comic shows as well, but is a, is really into video games as well. And he wrote a book for Boss Fight Books, I think, all about Silent Hill too. So yeah, check that out if you're interested in reading more of that, uh, more about that game. Right, uh, yeah, we're now well into the year, aren't we? Of guests of my perfect console year two. It's uh, yeah, it's great. We I've got guests booked up to the end of the summer, so there's no shortage of people who are who are coming on the podcast from all sorts of different walks of life. We've got some wonderful, uh, very very well regarded game makers, not only from the you know recent years, but also from the early early years of the industry, as well as comedians and musicians and all sorts of other kinds of people and yeah we've got our first couple of um my perfect console episodes that have been done in japanese with uh, an interpreter so one of those is coming up soon that'll be exciting i can't wait to share some of these interviews with you and the stories and the people that we've got um yeah it's really gratifying i'm still absolutely loving making this podcast thank you uh, if you have enjoyed it and have written to me, I really appreciate that. I've had quite a few messages already this season. And yeah, it's really, really encouraging. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I'm not going to read them out. But um, if you would like to to write to me, then please do do that because it's all very much appreciated. That is myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow along on Podcast Matters at uh, on Twitter at, at myperfectconsole with the O's removed. We're on Instagram as well, but the best place to get news about the podcast is on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash my perfect console for just five pounds, four pounds, around that four pounds fifty a month. You can become a supporter, helps to make the podcast sustainable. You get your episodes early and ad free, you get heads up on who the new guests are and some other benefits uh, sprinkled through the year. So, yeah, please consider doing that. It would be much appreciated. Uh, right next week we've got a great guest next week this one took a long time to negotiate and get locked down because of who this person is it's rod ferguson he is senior vice president of blizzard entertainment and he is also general manager of the diablo video game series yeah uh, rod is just a lovely person and it was really wonderful to talk to him but as you can imagine as someone who's very high up in Activision Blizzard there were quite a few hoops to go through to have the opportunity to talk to him but I'm so glad I did get that opportunity and it's a great conversation just a quick heads up though I did speak to Rod 
before there were the announcements that have been plaguing the video game industry in 2023 and 2024 of mass layoffs. And there were, of course, a large number of layoffs at Activision Blizzard that were announced shortly after our conversation. I don't think he was party to those. Um, but just a heads up that we don't address those in the episode um, because they hadn't happened yet. So I'll get into all of that uh, next next week when uh, when I do this the summing up of of that conversation. But anyway, it's going to be Rod Ferguson next week. It's a great chat. He's worked on some games that I'm sure that you have enjoyed, from Gears of War to Bullet Storm to Bioshock to Microsoft Train Simulator and uh, and Counter Strike, as well as of course Diablo. So yeah, we'll get into all of that uh, next week, and uh, until then. Have a great week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.